calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Assalamu alaikum, and welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 109. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. Well, it's April Fool's Day, but rather than being sadistic and playing some pernicious prank on you listeners, like sending a Brazilian wandering spider down your feed and into your MP3 player, we're going to rock your socks off instead. As you can probably tell, we have another sort of theme to this week's show, the ancient Near East, and we think you're going to enjoy it. We're going to start off with a great story by David D. Levine and finish up with a Bartle. Bartles are songs that are right for our bigger donors, exploring some sort of weird or fun song idea that they have. Hope you'll stick around for that. So our story this week is called Babel Probe by David D. Levine. David is a lifelong SF reader whose midlife crisis was to take a sabbatical from his high-tech job and attend the Clarion West Writing Workshop in 2000. It seemed to have worked. He made his first professional sale in 2001, won the Writers of the Future contest in 2002, was nominated for the John W. Campbell Award in 2003, was nominated for the Hugo Award and the Campbell again in 2004, and won a Hugo in 2006 for his short story, Tick, Tick, Tick. If that's not an inspirational bio for you writers out there, I don't know what is. A collection of his short stories, Space Magic, is available from Wheatland Press. He lives in Portland, Oregon with his wife, Kate Yule, with whom he edits the fanzine Bento, and their website is www.bentopress.com. We'll have both of those linked in our show notes. So without further ado, Babel Probe by David D. Levine. Transition complete. Boot sequence complete. Systems check complete. Locality acquisition complete. Operating system loaded. Defensive net armed. Tracking. Recording. I am alive. I am awake. I am here. Core services reassures me that all system services are operating normally. 
while defense and acquisition solidify my perimeter and begin constructing IO devices. Sustaining has already doubled my memory from the paltry petabytes that I had to work with on arrival, and the pace of construction is picking up rapidly. Location will have an initial report for me in 760 microseconds. Everything seems to be under control. While waiting for my senses to coalesce, I take the time to relax, work the kinks out of my muscles. Metaphorically speaking, of course. I have no muscles. I mass only a few micrograms. Transitioning anything more massive than that, 6,000 years into the past, would have raised the already hellacious energy costs of this mission to a level well beyond bankruptcy. The physics of time travel were well understood 50 years before I was designed, but only the latest advances in sub-quantum computing made it practical. Alas, humans will never travel in time. To transition a single human body by even a single second would cost more than the energy output of an entire star. I pity them, so massy, so slow, so bound to the physical world. Acquisition is beginning to form an image of my surroundings, gathering data from individual photons as the first tiny optical receptors come online. Input-output is the bane of my existence. I.O. devices, tied as they are to gross matter, must be built to nanoscale, or even bigger. So while subquantum effects like awareness, reasoning, memory, and intuition ripple at light speed from the point of transition, I must wait for plotting I.O. to be constructed atom by painful atom before I can experience the world around me. Core Services reminds me that awareness alone is pointless. My mission here is to gather data, draw conclusions, and return the results to my point of origin. Very well. I will be patient. I suspend I.O. subprocesses and review my mission until an interrupt is received. I have been sent to investigate one of the greatest mysteries of all time. The identity of Jack the Ripper, the fate of the lost colony at Roanoke, even the hidden story of the crucifixion have all been revealed, but the truth, if any, behind the Tower of Babel myth, found in so many cultures, still lies shrouded in secrecy. Without a specific point in time to focus the search, there are some puzzles even time travel cannot unravel. But then soldiers clearing undetonated ordnance from the Second Iranian-Turkish War discovered evidence, long buried, of a public works project of unprecedented size. A single massive structure, larger than the Great Pyramid of Cheops, and half again as old. The latest dating techniques were brought to bear, a specific date was ascertained, and an emissary was dispatched. Me. Location interrupts to inform me that I am on the probable outskirts of the city of Ur in the afternoon of August 23 of the year 4323 BCE. All within mission norms. I find myself 15 centimeters above ground in an arid region of scrub and palm. No signs of human activity so far, but my field of vision is limited by nearby dunes on all sides. Wind-blown sand whispers against the trunks of palm trees, and the air is dry and sharp. I myself am a disk of quantum and sub-quantum effects about 30 centimeters across, 
invisible and intangible, except for my perimeter ring of I.O. devices, which could easily be mistaken for blowing dust. I confirmed this by measuring my shadow and lips well below the threshold of human perception. I move up and out. I had expected to find myself near the construction site of the Great Tower, and I have been surprised not to hear the sounds of thousands of workers. I gain altitude, and suddenly, over the rise of a dune, I see it. A truncated cone 500 meters across its base and more than half that high. The tower dominates the horizon and fills nearly 30 degrees of my field of view. Even I, the product of more than 6,000 years of technological advancement from this point, am impressed. Human beings raised this with their own muscle power, without even the wheel. And construction is continuing. Long lines of men drag blocks of stone up ramps. Gangs of men with bronze chisels chivvy them into shape and position. In the distance, as I rise higher, I see massive quarries and enormous fields supplying stone to build the tower and grain to feed the armies of workers. Acquisition and estimation extrapolate from the visible crowds to a total workforce of over 12,000 people. That's a considerable percentage of the total estimated human population at this time. All toiling in complete silence. This is completely contrary to the best available theories and the evidence of hundreds of expeditions into the past, though I am the first to go back this far. How could an effort this massive be coordinated without some kind of oral communication? Could my hearing be defective? No. Sustaining tells me that all audio devices are functioning normally, and I hear the sigh of wind, the grind of stone on stone, and the clunk of chisels. I move in closer. Gangs of workers heave, rest, heave, rest, all in unison, all in silence. Overseers point, wave, nod, but do not speak. Fascinated, I peer closer still. Their ears, jaws, tongues appear normal. Deep imaging reveals bones, ligaments, and nerves in the expected places. Brains are almost identical to their descendants. But still, they make no sound. I am puzzled, but also pleased. Mysteries like this are why I am here. I, the coordinator, endowed by my creators with the capacity for original thought. I am not just a bundle of data collectors and services. I command acquisition to build new I.O. devices, then must idle for thousands of microseconds. Patience, patience. The first new devices to come online are electrical, and they show that the workers' brains are quite modern in function as well as form. Centers of hearing, speech, and language are active, but there are no radio waves, microwaves, or other forms of electromagnetic communication in use. The EM spectrum is exactly as silent as the air, alive with natural sounds but empty of human communication. Clearly, I must look elsewhere. I re-budget energy into building more advanced, subtle detectors, which my designers never anticipated I would need. Whole seconds go by, an eternity of anticipation. 
The moment my new subquantum detectors activate, I am knocked off my axis by an overwhelming flood of data. It is like stepping directly from the heart of a desert into a rushing river. I am buffeted on all sides by roaring streams of subquantum information which tear through my mind and leave me so battered I can barely react at all. It is core services, dumb, stolid core services, that finally damps the flow. I am shaken. Worse, I am damaged. Subquantum vorticals are displaced all over my structure, sustaining usurps coordinator's energy budget to effect repairs. I black out. When I return to myself, I find that the damage has been repaired, but at considerable energy cost. Some secondary mission objectives will have to be dropped, but I am capable of reprioritization. I must find the cause of this subquantum data flood, more intense than any network backbone I've ever tasted. It is unprecedented in human history. I spend thousands of microseconds tuning and testing my subquantum detectors. Then, delicately, gingerly, I bring just a few up to the lowest level of sensitivity. Even so, the input is enough to send me reeling, but I brace myself against the flow of data, try to make some sense of it. Squinting into a rushing wind of information, I strain against its overwhelming power, and finally hear voices, human voices. Or rather, I detect variations in the subquantum data stream that have the rhythm and cadence of human voices. My creators have given me a broad and powerful array of language software and a sizable database of information on historical languages. These sub-quantum voices are similar to many of them, Sumerian, Hittite, Chaldean, but not the same as any of them. But working for many seconds and using Sumerian as a lever, I eventually crack the code. The conversations are exactly what I would have expected at a pre-technological construction site. Commands, directions, complaints, all rendered in a medium that should not exist for nearly 6,000 years. As near as I can tell, the effects originate within the worker's own brains, a capacity undreamed of after decades of work with sub-quantum technologies. My mission is to capture data and return. I have already captured far more data and far more significant than had ever been anticipated. I should detach now, return the coordinator and its precious memory stores to my creators, but I am worried by what I have learned. I do not have the energy to transition my entire structure back to my point of origin. What might these amazingly advanced primitives learn from the pieces of me left behind? I can no longer assume, as my designers anticipated, that those pieces would slowly disintegrate into subquantum froth undetected. As I am pondering this problem, the rules change again. You. The voices come from nowhere and from everywhere. What are you? I cannot prevent myself from replying. Apart from the incomprehensible power behind it, the voice resembles the protocols of my programming cradle. I am designated Cron Explorer, 3009. Where have you come from? The voice hammers into me like a thousand tons of nails. I tremble before it. From about 600 meters in that direction, and about 6,000 years in your future, 
How is it that you cannot be seen? I am not a being such as these. Are you god or demon then? I am so far beyond my design parameters that I begin to fragment. Coordinator can only shiver violently while acquisition scans the subquantum and electromagnetic spectra for the source of the voice and defense builds and discards strategy after strategy, each one a paper boat against the roaring ocean. Core Services takes control of language centers and output devices. This unit is not programmed for the referenced functions. Please restate. I am the demon Urshubanipal. I have slain all gods, absorbed all other demons. Now these ones serve me alone. But I have never encountered one such as you. Are you God to be slain, or demon to be mated with? Location, 52 degrees 36 seconds east, 37 degrees 7 seconds north. Time coordinate, negative 1.8975 times 10 to the 11th seconds. System status, suboptimal. Please restate. You make no sense. Prepare to be slain. The voice coalesces, gains coherence, becomes briefly visible to my sub-quantum detectors as a huge whirlwind of red and black vorticals as it smashes me down into the sand. Most of my substance interacts only weakly with ordinary matter, but I.O. subsystems scream with pain as they impact the harsh grains, sustaining as a riot of damage reports. Defense attempts to analyze the attack. Core services thrashes, routing power first to one subsystem, then another, without plan, without coordination, as great fists of force batter me again and again. The whirlwind picks me up, tries to tear me in half, but this attack triggers something in defense's strategy bank, and it deploys an antiviral defense in response. The voice roars, incoherent, and flings me away. I go half-blind on one side as I smash into a tree, then drop, stunned, to the ground. In that brief respite from the pummeling I have received, Core Services reboots Coordinator, and I return to full awareness and shame of what has just occurred. I have lost control of myself. I have failed as Coordinator. I deserve to be slain. Red and black vorticals whirl in a gathering storm as the thing collects itself for another attack. All my subsystems cry for power, for guidance. You have hurt me. For this, your torment will be unending. The voice pounds at my hearing. Damaged IO units twinge at the onslaught. But I am still coordinator, still in control of my own systems, if nothing else. I shut off audio and linguistic subsystems, and the voice cuts off in mid-pronouncement. At the same moment, the whirlwind slows. The change is subtle, but Defense notices it and raises a priority interrupt to call it to my attention. I have been a fool. Responding to interrupt, I feed a plan of attack to Defense and cut off all power to every non-essential subsystem, including Coordinator. Only core services and defense remain. If my plan fails, 
I will never reboot. The thing that calls itself a demon continues to advance, but more slowly. The plan is simple. With most of me shut down, defense no longer must operate in real time. It is free to run at my hardware's full clock speed. The demon, used to dealing with human beings, operates at their speed. It might not even be capable of more. The demon reaches me. I shift to one side, but it extends a cloud of subquantum probabilities in my direction. It resembles the kind of assembler motivators used by sustaining and self-repair operations, but much larger and cruder. Defense whips me around the demon, deploying antiviral defenses at maximum power. The demon screams and lashes out, faster than I'd expected, tentacles of probability burning through my substance. I duck and dive under the attacking cloud, feeling the pain of I.O. modules ripped away by the contact. Defense closes down all I.O. ports, shutting off pain and sensation, and drives me into the heart of the demon. Blind and deaf, still I feel my substance burning away until defense routes all available power into one ravening burst of subquantum interference. The demon's dying scream sears directly into my thoughts. Ignoring closed ports and damaged I.O. devices, I howl along with it, an irrational howl of pain and anguish and hunger, feeling the demon die even as I starve myself of power to kill it. It takes a long time to die. When defense is certain that the demon is gone, it returns control to me. I am resting upside down in the sand, a battered hulk of less than half my original mass. I reactivate my remaining I.O. devices, run a system check. The results of the system check come back first. The battle with the demon, brief though it was in real time, has exceeded my energy budget. There is barely enough energy left to transition coordinator back to point of origin. Input from the I.O. devices follows. The people are standing stock still. They are awaiting orders. I am capable of reprioritization. The energy that could have been used to send me back to the future has been sufficient to power me for daily operations for 900 years now, but it won't last much longer. I shut down location, tracking, recording, and much of my memory long ago, and defense is a shadow of its former self, just enough that it can be restored if necessary. But there have been no further threats. It seems Urshurbanipal was the last of the gods and demons, just as it claimed. Only sustaining and simple faithful core services remain to me in my old age. The people have not enjoyed being taught to think for themselves. In some ways, they were happier being worked as slaves, tools of the demon for its own self-aggrandizement. But in every generation, there are a few who truly enjoy learning. One, Hephanamalet, I have taught to use clay counters to represent his flocks of sheep. 
I know from history that his descendants will press those counters into clay, making marks that are the beginnings of counting and writing. I do not know what the being that called itself the demon Urshibanapal truly was. It seemed to be a sub-quantum device such as myself, but cruder and more powerful. Could it have been a time traveler, or a descendant of the same? Or was it a natural phenomenon, the similarities between us being the result of parallel evolution? I have reviewed the records of the battle time and time again, and found no definitive answers. I still regret not fulfilling my primary mission. The data stored in my memory would have made my designers so very happy. But when I saw the people standing, staring, empty-eyed and emaciated, I knew that if I left them as they were, they would simply die where they stood, and I would find no civilization when I arrived. So I stayed, and I taught them to be human. The sub-quantum receptors in the human brain are already fading from disuse. Most of the population cannot hear me now. Only a few priests and shamans pass on my advice to the rest. By the time this technology is invented again, humans will be deaf to the sounds their machines make. It is a pity, but all things fade with time so that other things may be born. I am fading too. One day soon I will be gone, leaving only sub-quantum froth. But I will have one of the mightiest monuments of all time, the incomplete tower of the demon, its incomplete state is my present to my children. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed. A happy ending. I'm glad mankind didn't get traded one demon for another. I like how this story asks the question, what exactly is a demon? Coordinator himself, with all his brains, doesn't seem to know, and Urshibanapal can't seem to point one out in a crowd either. This story is Jesus Christ saying, you shall know them by their fruits, and Gandhi saying, we must be the change we want to see in the world. But it's better because it is a cool time-traveling robot fighting an ancient evil spirit. You know, we should market little dorky bracelets that say, what would Cron Explorer 2009 do? So we haven't had a Bartle in a while, because, well... We haven't had any big donations in a while. <laughs> no, no, really, it's okay. It's fine, just hold on a second, let me change the music. That's more like it. So where was I? Oh yeah. <laughs> no, no, really, it's okay. It's fine, just... You can put away your checkbook. I mean, we'll find a way to keep going on. Somehow. So this Bartle is called the Babylon Battle of the Bands, and it's written for the good folks over at Eisenbronn's Books. Eisenbronn specializes in publishing books on archaeology, biblical studies, and the ancient Near East. 
and they wanted to use the song as part of their company's April Fool's special spring sale, which features all sorts of bogus books and items for fake sale. Drabblecast fan Andy Kerr is an employee of Eisenbronn's and was the mastermind behind the scheme, asking for a song having to do with the ancient Near East and rock and roll. His company has a fake band called Newsy and the Hurrians, and he let me roll with the idea and see what came up. What came up is the Babylon Battle of the Bands, a song which fellow history buffs out there should enjoy. You can find the lyrics in the Bartle portion of our discussion forums, which you should join, over at Drabblecast.org. This Bartle is available as a separate MP3 in the Drabblecast MP3 warehouse, a link to which you can find on our main page, and it's Creative Commons, so you can upload, download, rip, burn, share, distribute, all you like. Just don't sell it and don't change it without being nice and asking first. Same goes for our show, Share the Weird. If you like the song, you may also like my CD, which has 10 tracks exploring the serious side of topics like whale cheese, chupacabra cover-ups, and Jesus cloning. You can find a link in our show notes, or you can go to my ridiculously crappy website, normsherman.com. I'm trying to bring schlocky back in style. Well, that's all for this week. Our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, asking you, are you a god to be slain or a demon? to be mated with. Yo, have you heard the new MC Hammer Rabbi album? It's hardcore. Whatever. That mess is old school, son. If you want hardcore, you gotta listen to Fitty Shekel. Fitty? Oh, please. That ain't hardcore. Roman kids these days with their aqueducts and nice little convenient roads. They don't know the first thing about hardcore. There was a time when music used to mean something. In fact, it meant everything, even your very survival. Bands like New and the Hurrians took the Near East by storm. Yes, sir, back in the day, this crescent was fertile with blood, babes, and battle because of a little thing called rock and roll. Back in the day, a long time ago, before Alex the Great made himself CEO and bought up the world and all of its rock and roll and then watered it down, prepackaged and sold it, homogenized, monopolized, commercially controlled it. I remember a time when rock and roll was an always so plebeian, so pacifist, so uncontroversial. I'll rock your face off after this brief commercial. It started in a garden when God made man and told him that his job was to cultivate the land. But one day while Adam was taking a snooze, God plucked out his rib and created the blues. She broke Adam's heart right after he awoke and inspired his music to mix gospel, jazz, and folk. The next day, Yahweh was up before dawn yelling, turn down that music and get off my lawn. Fight the power, stick it to the man. Get all the ladies, get all the land. Tune up your oud and crank up your amps. It's a Babylon battle of the bands. All the slaves in your city state, get up and dance. Shake those shackles, clap those hands. You want to see your civilization at Advance to grab that tablet and enter your clan In Hegemon Sargon's Babylon Battle of the Bands Age. The first distortion pedal caused outrage. Gilgamesh dyed his hair pink just to make a statement. Hammer Rabbi wrote a law code just so he could break it. Behind the ziggurat, smoking cigarettes, kids cutting class and growing out the mohawks, starting different bands and gathering more fans. Acquire new lands, keep trying to expand. Just a matter of time before things went amiss. Read the writing on the wall and can they inform script? The cradle of civilization is coming down and begun a Syrian rock revolution. Mesopotamia's most brutal competition with armies of greasy haired rock and roll musicians battling for power, fighting for supremacy and a record deal in the record. Of history. 
Fight the power, stick it to the man. Get all the ladies, get all the land. Tune up your oud and crank up your amps. It's the Babylon Battle of the Bands. All the slayers in your city state, get up and dance. Shake those shackles, clap those hands. You wanna see your civilization advance? Then grab that tablet and enter your clan. In Hegemon, Sargon's Babylon Battle of the Bands. Fight the power, stick it to the man. Get all the ladies, get all the land. Tune up your oud and crank up your amps. It's the Babylon Battle of the Bands. In your city state, get up and dance Shake those shackles, clap those hands You wanna see your civilization advance Just grab that tablet and enter your clan Fight the power, stick it to the man Get all the ladies, get all the lands Tune up your oud and crank up your hands It's the Babylon battle of the bands All the slaves in your city state, get up and dance Shake those shackles, clap those hands You wanna see your civilization advance Just grab that tablet and enter your clan In Hegemon Sargon's Babylon battle of the bands Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.